0: Hello and welcome, old friends and new Matthew Grant here, but just a cameo appearance today for me to push the play button and then I'm going to sit back and join you listening to this episode. Now, we're usually talking about property and casualty insurance with our guests, but from time to time, we like to look at what's happening in that parallel world of life and health insurance. Hannah Ree is one of the world's largest reinsurers and Tim Smith and Lisa Barber are Robin Merton's guests this week. You're going to get an update on wearables, affordable health insurance for all, and a chance to find out what innovation looks like inside a reinsurer. But before I hand over to Robin, a quick request. Please do let us know if you find anything interesting On these podcasts, our guests are delighted by the over a 1,000 people who are now listening to each episode, but we don't know who you are. So please keep making the comments on your podcast channel where you listen or a LinkedIn comment or message to Matthew Grant or Robin Merton. It makes our day. Or you can send an email, hello at instec.co. That's it, Robin, over
1: to you. So this week's podcast is with Hanoveri. And I'm joined today by Tim Smith and Lisa Balbao. Welcome both. Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Good to be here. Thank you very much for joining us, Tim. I'm going to start with you. You're head of protection for the Hanoveri in the UK. Tell us, what does a head of protection do?
2: Yes, thank you. It's not necessarily obvious, is it? It makes me sound a little bit like a bodyguard. (laughs) Uh, I do actually get approached on LinkedIn sometimes for people trying to sell me security cameras. But protection is our word for life insurance and critical illness insurance and covers like that that provide protection for people or their families should the worst happen. And so I head up that business line in the UK. And as a reinsurer, obviously our clients are other insurers. So it's my job and my team's job to go out, build relationships with them, understand their needs in terms of the risks on their balance sheet, and then price those risks appropriately and provide them with solutions. As part of that, we also offer services, perhaps supporting them with innovative new
1: products or things like that. Yeah, so I think you can be better at that than the bodyguard role. And Lisa, so you've just been promoted. You've got a new job now. You're the head of Hanover e Life and Health Digital Business Accelerator. What does that involve?
3: Thanks, Robin. I'm really excited for the new role and real pleasure to be here to talk to all your listeners today as well. So in the Life and Health DBA, we're a global cross-functional innovation network. So what that means is we want to use digital innovation to support our insurance clients right across the life and health insurance value chain, wherever they may be around the world. So although our team is based out of London, we actually cover an international focus. And I think it's pretty important with the fast pace of digital change that we're all experiencing. So we're really here as an accelerator to make sure we have our finger on the pulse of innovation so we can really support our insurance clients in working with us and also in working with our global partners to embed those digital solutions into their insurance products and propositions And really excited for the topic today as well, I think we see really strong opportunity to leverage digital innovation, particularly to develop and deliver new products or new propositions that can provide clear value to a really broad cross-section of society and broaden that protection coverage right across the globe.
1: That that's, that's great. It's a matter of interest. Why London? You're a headquartered in Germany. I'm sort of intrigued to know why you picked London as, as the place to put your accelerator.
3: Yeah, quite rare for London. I'm actually born in London, but of course that played no part in our decision to <laughs> base the accelerator out of London. Really, the motive there is to widen access. So we have really great access to Insurtex, to the digital innovation ecosystem in the UK Also in London and the UK, we're a global leader in life sciences and healthcare innovation. So that's a particularly good fit for our life and health digital business insurance accelerator. And you also learn from Tim that Hanoveri has a really strong track record of innovation in the UK market. So we can then share those experiences with our global Hanoveri colleagues as well as, of course, learn from all those colleagues around the globe. So really, we can be that knowledge spreader. And being based in London, we're really well connected to serve that global purpose.
1: Tim, I can't believe that a head of protection wouldn't have high on the list of things to worry about the protection gap. And I'm sure it's a focus for Hannah Marie and as it is for the industry as a whole. For the listeners, help us first with what is the protection gap when when we're talking life and health insurance.
2: Yeah, so the vast majority of protection insurance in the UK is sold through financial advisors to people that are generally at the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So that's a fairly narrow cross-section of society. And when you look at the statistics, around 50% of the adult population have no sort of life insurance at all. So probably the biggest gaps, I would say, relate to wealth or age. So yes, it's the less well-off in society tend not to access protection. And then there is definitely a younger demographic, so young families, maybe in rented accommodation, who don't typically access protection. And also older lives, actually, at the other end of the spectrum people that potentially could have products that might pay for care or something like that. So they're probably the biggest gaps. There are then gaps around specific health conditions. So people unable to access life insurance because they've got a chronic condition or something, where actually, if that's well-managed, There's no reason that they shouldn't be able to get cover and actually technology has a key role there in being able to sort of monitor these conditions and prove to an insurer that actually certain conditions are quite well managed
1: and then where are you focusing and then what are your motivations i mean i can see at the highest level the more customers you have, the more premiums you get in. But presumably, there's a little bit more to it than that.
2: Clearly, there is a commercial element. The more business we can write, the better. And what we do find in the UK is that a lot of providers end up chasing the same people and churning sales. Potentially, somebody will lapse a life insurance policy just to buy another one. So you're not really generating any new, new business in the market that way. So I guess new business isn't always new business. So I think growing the market has got to be good for the industry as a whole, but it's also a huge societal benefit. Take that example of the older person potentially needing cover to pay for their care needs. They personally will probably be able to access a higher standard of care because they have more money in order to purchase that. But it's also a way of putting less strain on the NHS if they're able to pay for their own care. And so there's a huge sort of societal benefit to these things if we can increase that access.
1: Lisa, quite naturally, Tim has a UK hat on when he's looking at the protection gap, whereas the Accelerator is a bit more global. Is there a difference in the way you look at things? Is the gap in your terms liable to sort of regional differences?
3: I think the gap is regionally dependent. I think the gaps that Tim outlined are the ones that you have a flavor of throughout the globe, right? The healthcare gap, the access to, for example, the missing middle in terms of the middle income lives getting cover, also the older age lives. I'd probably throw in also inflation and the rising cost of living, which is another one on everyone's agenda right now as well. But I think as you look at the global picture, that can very much vary depending on the local context. So, country like japan would obviously have a much more acute older age life protection gap they've got one of the highest old age dependency ratios in the globe so there would be a big market there when it comes to developing new insurance products to target those lives if you look for example at parts of latam parts of africa maybe parts of southeast asia that missing middle income group that might be where that comes into even more focus compared to a country like the uk as well And even basic things like the healthcare gap, right? The actual health insurance context for a country like the UK, there's the NHS, whereas globally their health systems can really vary depending on country. So that's always very important to be mindful of when targeting new insurance products.
1: So across that vast spectrum, because you can't do it all, where are you running the accelerator, sort of focusing your investment and your activities?
3: Yeah, good question. So Obviously, as an accelerator, our focus areas will shift over time, but our current focus areas for today, a couple of them are, for example, digital health data. So really, as that wealth of health data evolves, we have things like the wearables, smartphones, electronic health records. I can now access my NHS GP records right back when I was born, which I guess is impressive, but so can my 70-year-old father. He can see those vaccinations that he had as a kid at his fingertips in a digital way. So we're getting access to all this wealth of information. Of course, being mindful of data privacy and data security, there can actually be some really big opportunities to unlock the value of digital health data, particularly for us as a reinsurer when it comes to things like analysing biometric risk, so working with our insurance partners to understand how can we access this data to assess risk, and then also to build those new products for underserved customer groups. So that's one flavour of what we're looking into.
1: That gets me on to my old gripe about wearables. Tim, perhaps I'll address this one to you. Been in and around this innovation space five, six years, done the occasional foray into life and health. Wearables was always a, a big thing, and this big sense that wearables was going to change the nature of the relationship with the customer and provide a whole new data set. But then I sort of look at through my own personal lens at all that, and I say, I'm not wearing a wearable and I'm not sharing my health data with anybody. What's the reality now after three, four, five years of experimenting with this? Is it still like a sort of marketing? exercise, or is it gravitating to something really tangible and and interesting from your point of view?
2: So I think how wearables have been used in the market, certainly in the UK market to date, it has been a lot about the marketing. I don't think we can get away from that. I think there's a selection impact as well. You tend to attract more sporty people who are maybe a bit healthier if you're sort of branding and your focus of your product is around wearables. To date, that's really been the focus. I think in the future, I do think they have potential if you're moving the focus away from trying to change people's behavior. I think for me, that's the fallacy. I've got a friend who's a GP and I was chatting to her about this. And she doesn't believe that she really changes anyone's behavior by giving them general health advice when she sees them. And if people aren't going to listen to their doctor, they're certainly not going to listen to their life insurer telling them that you need to do X, Y, and Z to be healthier. So I'm quite skeptical about sustained long-term behavioral change being driven from these things. But where I think they have potential is in being able to point out to people that there's been a change from their baseline or something, that there's something really concerning going on, and then saying, look, I really think you should go and get this checked out. And then if they're getting it checked out a lot earlier than they would otherwise have noticed their symptoms, then potentially there's genuine benefit for them in terms of getting earlier treatment and better outcomes. And then obviously, there's a genuine benefit for the insurer and the reinsurer too, because potentially we're avoiding having to pay claims if we've caught something early enough. So I think that's probably the key for me in the future is that we need to move away from sort of fitness, if you like, and towards just health, and particularly sort of picking up acute things and giving people actionable advice.
1: Lisa, you've got a slightly different view on on wearables. Partly because you're you know that generation that were brought up with these things, but partly you've seen the advantages at first hand. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, you're flattering me, Robin. I think I missed the cut for a under-30s talk the other week that Tim invited a different colleague to, but that's another story. So yeah, I was probably one of the early adopters of Fitbit. Actually, I still still having a draw somewhere, my very first Fitbit, which looks quite archaic okay compared to the Apple Watch that I'm wearing today and also the Alra ring, the smart ring that I have on. And that really motivates my interest in the wearables, right? I experienced firsthand when I had COVID, waking up to just a half a degree rise in body temperature being detected by my ring and it telling me, oh no, you're sick. You should take it easy and rest. And then it did a lateral flow and it was COVID. But that's just half a degree rise in body temperature. So not something that you would ordinarily detect, but the power of the wearables here is really it can detect also the heart rhythm, things like the heart rate variability, the resting heart rate. So it's not just using that one Traditional measure that the doctor would do, just shove a thermometer under the tongue or something like that. But really, it's actually more powerful to capture data from across different sensors and then see what could be done. I had to pace myself back to recovery after COVID so I could see my resting heart rate was 10 beats per minute higher. And my heart rate variability was not back to its normal, even for two or three months after COVID. So I'm a really keen swimmer, but I didn't rush back to my full swim. I really paced my recovery guided by that wearable health data in order to make sure that I didn't rush back as quickly. So I think that speaks quite well to what Tim was saying the real opportunity for technology to be a force for good here so rather than having for me to reach out to the doctor and follow their advice I could take my health into my own hands there and be responsible in my recovery.
1: Indisputably the ability to pick these things up early is going to be very powerful uh, across the board. Slightly changing the topic tim back to you i think this is because we're recording this on a friday afternoon you probably got me slightly end of a long week but my other grump about all this stuff is this idea of millennial engagement and us making our product set fundamentally more available to a new generation who buys in a different way and who behaves in a different way is that something you worry about are you evolving the product set to align with millennial lifestyles i mean do they care about life and health products
2: I mean, I think with this, you have to be very targeted. You need to find the potential customers who actually need the product. So people panic that we're not selling protection to the younger generation. But if they're talking about somebody in their early 20s with no financial dependence, you know, starting out their career, well, they have no need for protection. So of course, we're not going to sell to those people. But I think, I guess one of the gaps that I mentioned earlier is probably People in their, say, early 30s with a young family in rented accommodation, traditionally protection would often be bought when you had your first mortgage and often your mortgage advisor would try and sell you a protection policy as well. And so with maybe fewer people buying houses in those younger years, we're potentially missing that opportunity to sell to that generation. So I think it's probably people in that demographic, people that do have financial dependence and would clearly benefit from the product, that That is the unreached demographic at the moment. And in terms of what we're doing about that, I think a lot of it is partly about product and it's partly about distribution. So if they're not talking to a financial advisor, then we need to find another way to reach them. And that's tricky because people don't naturally wake up in the morning and think, oh gosh, I need life insurance today. You need to find them and convince them that they need it and convince them what sort of product they need. And it's partly about product as well. I think not overcomplicating the product, keeping it simple so that people can easily understand it if they've not got some sort of advisor there telling them what it all means. It's really crucial.
1: Lisa, back to you. I was a bit rude about wearables and I know that they, you know, have a role to play, but I don't have a collective downer on the whole broader topic of digital health and the whole new tool set that's now available, particularly the role that smartphones have to play. How are you using all these tools and how are they being useful for you and your lab activities?
3: Yeah, I'm glad your optimism is picking back up towards the weekend, Robin. Personally, like I said, I do find wearables valuable, but I think what's really interesting here is opportunities from things like smartphones, you know, something we carry around in our pocket with us every day, and that can actually open up a wealth of opportunities for insurance customers to be in the driving seat of their own health and also for insurers and reinsurers to support customers in improving their health. So just a few simple examples, things like the virtual GP that everyone got to know and experience during those COVID lockdown times. That would be one example, but it's quite a good example because it's now paved the way for triage services for things like musculoskeletal to access a physiotherapy, a digital triage tool where you can self-serve, but then get that onward signposting to a physiotherapist if you need. So that can actually help us be more efficient with our resources and also speed up access to care need or to self-serve when they can do that as well. There's also some really cool technologies out there. There's the transdermal optical imaging. So put simply, it's a, a video selfie. So you just take out your phone, you take a video selfie for about 30 seconds, maybe a couple of minutes, and that can capture things like your heart rate, your breathing rate, So really, some clinical grade type medical information. It's still early stage, so it's not yet FDA approved or that clinical quality, but it shows really good promise and can already be used by people to just understand their day-to-day health, track that general well-being. Some really good opportunities to dive deeper into the risk of a customer, but not only to do that, really to empower people through that smartphone that they have in their pocket anyway, to actually understand their own health and access to clinical support where they have that acute risk or chronic condition
1: there's no shortage of interesting things that are going to come your way over the next five or ten years talking of which tim uh, how about genomics we can't have a conversation about what the future looks like without mentioning it we're lucky here in the uk that we're a real center of expertise is that something that you've been looking into
2: yes so In the industry, it's often seen as a bit of a threat, actually, because we've decided as an industry that we shouldn't use genetic testing data to underwrite people to assess the risk that they pose in terms of life or health insurance. But that does lead to a bit of a uh, asymmetry of information between what the insurer knows and what the individual knows and potentially could lead to some anti-selection. Though I don't think the predictiveness of most tests is really there yet to really drive that. So it's not a concern probably in the short term. But we are also looking at the potential here for genetic advances. And an example of one is you can use genetic testing to test the genomics of a particular cancer. And that might then suggest that a different treatment than the sort of standard treatment for that type of cancer would be much more effective. And these sorts of treatments are being developed at quite a fast rate. There's a very big pipeline of these things coming on. And there's quite a gap, actually, in the UK between what is available out there, what you could be treated with, and what the NHS will support. And that's partly a cost thing, and it's partly just a timing thing that it takes a while for the NHS to approve things that the NHS will pick up the costs for. And so we're looking at potential insurance products that might cover that gap so that if somebody is advised a different treatment that they're unable to access on the nhs then it would step in and potentially provide a sum of money so they're able to access that treatment so i think there's going to be a lot of exciting developments ahead of us in the genetic space as well as some definite hurdles to overcome
1: Tim, that's really interesting i haven't heard of that product before and i have to say my first impressions Given the natural dynamics of a public health system and an aging population and the amount of money that's required here in the UK to keep funding it, as the gap between that and the open market broadens, you could see that there'd be immense potential and immense interest in a product like that. Good luck with it. Lisa, I'm coming to you last. There are so many opportunities with these new digital technologies that you're playing with, and then there are so many kind of medical advances you can make use of to to close the insurance protection gap. What are you going to do next?
3: We're really excited for the next 12 months. We can see that huge potential with the digital technologies, the sort of latest medical advances that Tim was mentioning just now as well. My mandate really is to support our global insurance partners in developing solutions here. So what might work in the UK, some of it might need to be bespoke for a different market. So that's really the exciting challenge ahead, really working with our insurance clients, working with our global digital and innovation partners to really make sure we can help serve those customer needs and get insurance into the hands of more customers and also work with our insurance partners in embedding all this exciting digital change, new medical advances, Into life and health insurance as well.
1: That sounds really interesting. Somebody has something they think they can contribute or they want to know more about your activities. How do they get hold of you?
3: Be really delighted to connect on the topic with your listeners. So feel free to just reach out on LinkedIn. That's the best way to get hold of me.
1: Good for you. Thank you. Look, thank you both. Tim, will you thank your uh, puppy for his generous contribution? I really enjoy my little forays into life and health. And uh, there were several things in there that I'd not been aware of. And that that sounds completely fascinating. So thank you both for joining us and see you again soon. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. Well, do you notice no commercials in here?
0: That's because we don't need to, because we are here to support our members and educate our network. Over 100,000 people engaged with us at Instec last year through the podcast, events, articles, newsletters, and LinkedIn. Are you wondering what you're missing? Well, take a look at Instech.co to find out about membership for your company and how we can help you, or just email Matthew Grant or Robert Merton's details in the episode notes. That's it. We're done.